Wouldn't it be great if you had 24-7 access to Jesus? If Jesus lived in your house, sat at your dining room table, came to work with you during the day, and hung out with you at night? Can you imagine going on vacation with Jesus? If, you, if Jesus was continuously present in your life, how would that change your attitudes, your behavior, and your choices? Imagine when you faced a problem where you didn't know exactly what to do. You could just ask him, kind of like having a Jesus home mini, sitting in the kitchen, listening to your conversations, waiting for your inquiry. As wonderful as that might seem, it also might be a little challenging. Think about what it must have been like to grow up in the same house as Jesus. Jesus was the oldest child in his family. He was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But after he was born, Mary and Joseph had other children, half-brothers and sisters to Jesus. In our family growing up, my mother kept a baby book for me and my other siblings. You know, the kind of keepsake book where they, they put the bracelet from the hospital, your baby pictures, important documents and information, and maybe a lock of your hair. And since I am the youngest and the last born, my baby book was considerably thinner than my other siblings, and all the last borns know what I'm talking about. But can you imagine sitting around the living room with Jesus and all his half-brothers and sisters, and Mother Mary gets out the baby books? And you hear the story again about the angelic visits and the star in the east and the worshiping shepherds, the group of scholars from Babylon who came a little bit late, but wow, the gifts they brought. And then there were the accounts of Jesus's dedication at the temple and the prophetic words of Simeon and Anna. Now by comparison, I imagine that the other siblings' baby books were very thin and far less impressive. And all of that might've been a little hard to take. And it didn't stop there. The Gospel of Luke summarizes Jesus' early life this way. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. So their older brother is the golden boy who excels in education, is good with people, is physically strong and noted for his faith and wisdom. And he's just so nice and humble about it all. It's a little frustrating. As they grow up, Jesus becomes increasingly different from the other children in the neighborhood. He thinks differently and speaks differently. He has this deep connection with God and a strong moral compass and a heart for the underdog. Even as a young man, he doesn't put up with bullying or gossip or superficial relationships. He has fun and a laugh that can fill the room, but he also is so purposeful. He studies the scriptures and asks deep questions that stump even the rabbis. And it all becomes a little perplexing for the family. Why does Jesus do that? And the embarrassment and the frustration grows. Jesus starts to perform miracles and proclaim that he is the son of God and crowds gather around just to hear him speak. And perhaps his siblings become a little more jealous of all the attention he gets. He's not so great. Well, actually he is. And the religious leaders begin to perceive that Jesus is a threat. And they claim that he must be demon-possessed to do the things that he does. And Jesus is publicly ridiculed, and so are those who follow him. And it gets so chaotic that we are told that finally Jesus' family come to pull him out and to take him home. Mark 3.21 says, When his family heard about this, they went out to take custody of him, saying he's out of his mind. But he did not go with them. Jesus' siblings did not believe that he was the Messiah, the Savior, despite how he had lived growing up and the things they had seen and heard from him. They did not believe. 
just like no one else in his, in his hometown believed either. They all thought, this is just the carpenter's kid. And the family probably was so alienated from each other that by the time Jesus was on the cross and dying, Mary was there alone. The rest of the family were gone. None of them were there any longer. Joseph had probably died. His siblings had scattered and Mary is crying alone. So from the cross, Jesus says to his friend, John, please take care of my mom. But then something happened. Something incredible, something radical happened. I want you to take your Bible and find the book of James, a book written by one of the brothers of Jesus. The book of James is located right near the end of the New Testament. Just go ahead and find it in your paper Bible or pull it up on your phone or device. This summer, we're going to look at this book that was written by a guy who knew Jesus and grew up with Jesus as his older brother. Someone who had a front row seat for most of Jesus's life, who grew up disbelieving, who grew up frustrated, who grew up embarrassed, who grew up with a family increasingly separated from Jesus, but then suddenly everything changed. And you see it right there in how the book starts in verse one. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does a disbelieving, frustrated, embarrassed half-brother become one who doesn't even play the Jesus is my brother card when he writes, but simply says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's simple. He had a life-changing encounter with the resurrected Lord. In Corinthians chapter 15, we are told that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he showed himself to the apostles. He showed himself to a large group of people. And specifically, we are told, he showed himself to his brother, James. You see, there would have been rumors of an empty tomb. There would have been witnesses who said that they had seen Jesus. But what convinced James that Jesus was the Savior what transformed a doubting, frustrated half-brother into a fully devoted servant was a personal encounter with the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. Everything shifted in that moment. And one who didn't even want to be called a brother now wants to be called a servant. And the same thing can occur in your life when you encounter Jesus personally, not as a theory or just a historical figure or as the foundation of someone else's faith, but when you encounter Jesus personally as the living resurrected Lord, full of wisdom, grace, truth, and love, that encounter changes you. And if you've never had that relationship, that encounter personally, then seek after Jesus. Seek after him in prayer. Get to know him through the words of scripture. Allow others to journey with you and take time to make space to meet with Jesus. And he will come to you and give you what you need to believe. Like James, let Jesus know that you were, you were wrong to be embarrassed by him for so long and that you are sorry that you kept him at a distance for such a long season. Ask him to meet you like a brother every day. It's all there in the words that James chooses for his introduction. He's proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. 
He's declaring him as Lord, the leader of his life, the one who is sovereign over all things. This opening greeting could be paraphrased, James, a servant of Jesus, who is my brother, my savior, and the leader of my life. So who is James? Now, there are several people named James in the New Testament. Two of them were part of Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples, but this letter comes from a different James. This is from James, the half-brother of Jesus, whose life was spiritually transformed through an impersonal encounter with the resurrected Lord. Just imagine James learning about Jesus after that encounter. Think about him listening to the apostle Peter tell the stories of Jesus's miracles and his incredible teaching. Or James and, and the apostle Paul studying the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah and doing all this from the perspective who knew Jesus so personally and intimately as a brother. And it would all begin to fall into place and begin to make sense and become clearer and clearer. And as he matured in his faith, James became a leader. And after Peter moved on to go and start new church sites from the Jerusalem church, James became the pastor of the church, a church made up mostly of Jewish Christians who formed the first Christian community. And we are told that James's wisdom was so practical that even veterans like Peter listened to his advice and followed his leadership. The apostle Paul in Galatians 2 calls James one of the pillars of the church. He was known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage, but he also knew suffering. And in the end, he was martyred, murdered for his faith because he would rather die than deny that Jesus not only was his brother, but also was the living Lord. By the way, Probably one of the most significant proofs of the resurrection is found in the life of James and the other apostles who faithfully followed Jesus to the end. You got this whole group of people who absolutely opposed Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with him, who never believed in him at all. And then suddenly they were willing to leave everything and sacrifice not only their reputation, but their well-being in order to follow Jesus and proclaim him as Messiah and endure incredibly suffering to the point of death. Nothing can explain love and loyalty like that. I mean, one person might be willing to die for a made up lie, or a group of people might be willing to, to hold on to a lie about somebody for a few years or for a little while, but eventually someone's gonna tell the truth. But here you have a whole group of people going through decades of suffering and persecution and not one of them breaks ranks. They are loyal because they knew who Jesus was. They knew that it was true. They go to their deaths declaring, I don't care what you tell me, I tell you the truth. Jesus is alive and he is the savior and the Lord. He changed my life and he can change your life too. James is one of the most significant proofs of the resurrection and his faithfulness to his brother Jesus. But why is this book of, of James so important? It's because this is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And in those early days of the church, they needed a book of wisdom condensed from the life of Jesus that served as a guide to help them live out their faith. James is what Pastor Paul Tripp calls street-level Christianity. In fact, you will hear an echo of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount all the way through the book of James. Do you remember Cole's notes? If you do, you're probably older than 50. But Cole's notes was what got me through high school English. 
they would take a classic work in literature like Shakespeare and they would condense it down into easily understandable points that you could use. That's what James is doing with the teaching of Jesus. He's making it easy to apply in order that we might live it out. He addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. These were Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who'd been persecuted and forced to flee because of their faith. They had suffered tremendously for their faith and loyalty to Jesus. Next summer, I get the privilege of being part of a group that is traveling to Turkey, and we're going to see some of the places these early Christians were scattered and lived, carrying the message of the gospel with them. We read in the book of Acts chapter 8 that the persecution of God's people was so great in Jerusalem that these people had to run for their lives. And now James is writing to them as their pastor to encourage them and to remind them of the truth that Jesus is something worth living for and dying for. And while they ran, James stayed behind and cared for those who could not run, the elderly and the poor. And in doing so, he made certain his own death. We know that the church in Jerusalem went through hard times during the 20 years that James was its pastor. There was a famine. There was great poverty in the region. And there was blame, prejudice, and violence against those Christian Jews because of their faith in Jesus. So what's the big deal? The words of James are not just motivational thoughts for a Sunday. This is practical wisdom for difficult days written by someone who knows. This is a summons for the church to become truly wise and to move and live in the wisdom of God. In fact, there is probably no better description in the Bible of what the Christian faith looks like lived out in real life than in the book of James. It is of vital importance. And the first thing I would like you to do this summer is to read a section of James every day. Start this week with the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Read them through every morning and let God highlight one piece of wisdom that he wants you to hold on to and live out throughout the day. And then every morning, do the same for a week. And it'll be amazing how God interprets a different, the same passage in a different way into your life and applies it very practically. This is faith on the move. Next week, I want you to, the next week, I want you to do the second half of chapter one and so on. And just let the wisdom of God's word soak into your life. Second, I want you to download the talking points for our move series in James. We've already produced the entire series and uploaded them to the website so you can study the entire book over the summer. Our desire is to get you into God's word and to get God's word into you. The book of James is New Testament wisdom literature that reads a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And it encourages God's people to act like God's people. In fact, for James, a faith that does not produce real life change is a faith that is worthless. In James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. For James, faith is not an abstract proposition or a spiritual philosophy. It's real life action. We are saved by faith alone in Christ. But faith always involves movement. Talk is cheap. Putting your words into action is what is of real value to James. It's not that works save the Christian. Rather, it's that works are the mark of the Christian. 
In James, we discover how to close the gap between our espoused theology and our operative theology, between the faith we proclaim and the one that we live out. Now, James had a head start on discipleship. He lived with Jesus for nearly 30 years. And when people would say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? James is like, you know, I can tell you, I was there. And that, that's why James's letter doesn't read like any other New Testament book. This is a collection of wisdom that he has gained from Jesus. And he shares it with the goal of helping us live out our faith in practical ways. And that's why we've called this series Move, because James is all about wisdom in action. And the first wisdom we run into is how to have faith in the fire. When trials come, how do you stand strong? When temptations come and they, 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 they lure you to sin or to compromise, how do you remain true to your convictions? When trouble snaps your confidence and takes you out at the knees, how do you stand up and keep going? Look at verse two. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. The New Living Translation says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Notice it doesn't say if trouble comes, like it's an option. Sometimes people buy into the notion that following Jesus means that life will be easy, that faith is somehow a formula for the good life. And when trouble comes, they interpret that as an indication that somehow God has forgotten them or is displeased with them, that either they have messed up or God has. But Jesus warns us, in this life, you will have trouble. It's part of what it means to live in a sin-cursed world. Are you facing troubles today? Are there challenges that are testing your faith? How do you respond when trouble comes? Because trouble will. You're either just recovering from a time of trouble, in a time of trouble, or it's just around the corner. How do you respond? James says, first of all, think big picture. Remember what God is up to. When James uses the phrase, consider it pure joy, he's not deluded enough to think that trials are fun. He's not suggesting that hardship or illness or persecution should make us happy or that following Jesus is always easy. Rather, he says, think about what God is up to. Don't get overruled by your emotions. There is something bigger going on that will result in pure joy if you are faithful. Verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, don't think of that word testing like an examination in school where God is grading you. Don't think of it in terms of pass or fail. That's not the kind of testing we're talking about here. This testing is the term that silversmiths would use back then. And it's where we get the phrase testing your metal from. It's all about purification. The way that they would test the metal is that they would take a bunch of silver and they would put it into a pot and then they would heat it up with fire. And what happens is that at a certain temperature, all the impurities, the dross and the coal would rise to the surface. They were boiling out the imperfections so that the silver could reach a higher state of strength, purity, and beauty. And that is exactly why James is telling us 
to consider it joy when trials come because that's what trials do. God allows them to come into our life for the purposes of refinement. Next, the silversmith would scoop off that top layer of dross and, they, and then they would heat the silver up again and they would do it over and over again until the silver was tested and pure. And the way they knew that the silver was, was actually tested was that they could look down and they could see a clear reflection of themselves in the silver. And it's a beautiful picture because the idea is that that's what trials do in our lives. God uses them to test us and to purify us and to make us faithful and strong and beautiful. And the idea is that one day he will look down and he will see a clear reflection in you of him as you become more and more like him. The idea of being made mature and complete, lacking nothing, is what it means to be tested and that's God's goal for you and me. He wants us to be a reflection of him. And he will use trials in my life so that I can learn to persevere through them and to trust him in the midst of them. So that, and in the process, he takes away all those impurities, the selfishness, the anger, the greed, the pride, the jealousy, the need to control. He takes those things from me, as painful as that might be. And in their place, he gives me his truth and his love and his grace. God's main goal is not to make you happy. Rather, it's to make you holy and complete. He wants you to be a reflection of him and, that, and that's what the trials do. That's what the sufferings do. They make us more and more like Christ. And Jesus knows about suffering. Suffering that results in joy long-term. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you ever thought that the goal of your life is to be more and more like Jesus? We often set goals, ambitions, things that we want to achieve. But nothing else will bring greater joy and greater freedom in life than to become like Jesus and to be freed up from sin and selfishness. James is going to be a challenging book for us. I know it will be in my own life because there is still much purification to do. I don't always reflect the character and likeness of Jesus the way I would like to. So whenever trials come, I want to be willing to say, I will receive them, Lord, because through them, I want to learn to be more and more like you. Second, ask Jesus for help. Wisdom in the trial and deliverance from the trial. Look, look at verse five. It says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. It's okay to ask God to take the trial away, to end the suffering to ask God to bring healing and blessing because that is what he will someday do. It is his expressed will for you. But it might not come in your time and it might not come right now. He doesn't always deliver us from the storm, but he does promise us that when the storms come, he will be with us in the midst of them and he will bring us through them. Just think about the lessons that the disciples learned on their, in their own faith and how it grew by literally going through storms with Jesus. When he calmed the sea, when he walked on water, when he invited Peter to do the same. 
Some of the greatest spiritual growth comes in the midst of storms that we would rather avoid. James is saying, if, if you don't have wisdom to understand the trials and what's going on, and if you don't realize that these are actually for your benefit and, the, and then can be a good thing in your life, then pray and ask God. Say, God, would you give me the wisdom? Would you give me the perspective? Would you give me an awareness of your presence? Give me the wisdom that I need to be faithful in the midst of this. And God will give it generously. Finally, if you're gonna have faith in the fire, commit to go the distance. Don't squirm out halfway through the process. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is a challenge to persevere and stick it out when things get tough, like they have over the last year and like they might be in your life right now. Perseverance can be translated steadfastness and it has two aspects to it. The first is a fixed direction that you know where you are going. You know your end destination and you are committed to stay the course. The second aspect of steadfastness is having a firmness of purpose, knowing who you are and what you are called to do, knowing that God values you and he has created you with a purpose to reflect him and to represent him here on earth. And no matter what challenges God brings into your life, that purpose endures because God has chosen you to be part of his agenda here on earth, even as he prepares you for heaven. Paul Tripp says, pure joy is found not in living for the little purposes of self, but in living for the expansive purposes of the kingdom of God. That's what steadfastness, that's what having a, a, a firm direction and purpose really means. It means I have a reason for speaking in a certain way. I have a reason for conducting my relationships in a certain way. I have a reason for investing my money in a certain way. I have a reason for using my time and energy in a certain way. I have a reason for thinking certain things about certain things and doing certain things. You see, I have a fixed direction and it colors every practical aspect of my life. And as you follow Jesus, you have a direction and a purpose too. And when you get into a time of testing, Jesus says, endure, keep going, because if you do, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's those who truly love God who make it through the test and don't give up. Because it's easy to love God if, if he gives you everything that makes you feel good, everything that makes your life comfortable. But what, but what about when he says, no? No, I'm, I'm gonna allow some, some trouble to come. I'm gonna allow it to come into your life so that I can prove myself to you. And so that by going through this, it's gonna produce some character in you and allow you to prove your faith and to persevere. Do you love him then? Are you willing to persevere through those trials, allowing God to use them to purify you so that when you've made it through, you'll receive the crown of life that God has promised. He's talking about eternal life when there will be no more trouble and when all this pain will be gone. But for now, we persevere. We are steadfast. We have faith in the fire. Everyday wisdom from Jesus.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this vision that this passage brings to us. Thank you for the purifying work that you're doing in our life. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the bigger picture of what you are doing and that you would give us the wisdom we need to follow you faithfully. Fill us with grace and and determination to persevere. Put steadfastness in our hearts, Lord, when trials come. Lord, I pray that we would not only receive the comfort of this passage, but that we would receive the call of it as well. And that we would give ourselves to a fixed direction and a firmness of purpose, even in the hardest moments of life, looking at those moments and seeing your presence and seeing the opportunity to trust you and reflect you. Lord, give us this grace and this wisdom and this understanding, I pray, and lead us into your wisdom in the book of James. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.